Good day, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday, and we are thinking through God's Word together, sipping some coffee. It's going to be a, a great time. Glad to have you all with us. Hey, Ron and Caitlin and Anthony. Anthony says Doug knows how to title his videos. <laughs> so I, I hooked you in with that, did I? Oh, good. We'll, uh, we'll talk about it. It'll be fun. It'll be a good test, this whole issue of whether or not Esau was able to repent. It'll be a good test to uh, see whether you read the Scripture from a uh, pre-fabriced, pre-pre—what's the word I'm looking for? A uh, if you impose upon the text a system of theology, or whether you draw out from the text what the argument is in light of its context. So we'll uh, we'll see. We're all on that. Good to have you with us. Hope you had a great Lord's Day yesterday. Of course, today's another great Lord's Day, isn't it? <laughs> so good to have you with us. All right, so we're in Hebrews and uh, chapter 12, and if you recall, chapter 12 comes off the heels of chapter 11, where uh, the writer lists all these giants of the Old Testament, giants in the sense that they had a great trust in God to do what he said he would do, even in the midst of tremendous opposition, pain, suffering, even death, but they had their eyes set on the eternal prize as well as the temporal promises, both and, but but ultimately they were looking for that eternal destiny that God would take them to, and so they were willing to wait and patiently endure whatever uh, because they trusted the Lord. And that that's the example set for us. Chapter 12 begins, of course, with those famous words. We have this great cloud of witnesses, those who can testify to what they know and what is true. And that would be those uh, saints from the Old Testament from uh, j- chapter 11. And then remember, he says, look, we got to keep our eyes on Jesus, who also endured great suffering, even to the point of death. But he received the crown of of glory after that, after he went through the suffering. The joy set before him was what motivated him. And then uh, the writer says, look, you're being disciplined by your father. This hardship you're undergoing, it's discipline from the father. Then in chapter 12, verse 12, the writer encourages the entire church to take ownership of making sure everyone remains true and trusting to the end. We're responsible for one another. So he says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. This is a plural command, all of you. Those hands that are weak, the ones that are are losing their grip on the gospel, you all help them finish the race. Make straight paths for your feet so the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That limb, if you recall, is the uh, the individual, the person who is lame. He's struggling to hang on in the midst of persecution. So we all have a responsibility to help each other get through to, uh, to the finish line. He says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which, uh, without which no one will see the Lord. All right, we made it through that last week. So let's pick up this new section here then. He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Let me read that again. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now, for some of you, when you think of God's grace, 
it doesn't quite compute that someone could come short of the grace of God, does it? Don't we tend to think of God's grace as simply something he bestows on whoever he wants? And if he bestows upon it, it's irresistible. The eye and tulip, irresistible grace. You can't resist it. So why a command to make sure that no one comes short of it? And then the other thing that pushes against our understanding is he's again collectively saying you all, for those in Texas, all y'all, you are responsible to make sure that none in your midst, in your circle, comes short of God's grace. So my first question today to you is, does your understanding of the gospel and the biblical teaching force you to say, well, this writer couldn't mean this. He couldn't really mean that we need to make sure that nobody comes short of the grace of God because, of course, we don't have the ability to do that. It's all God's grace. See the tension there? In this text, the Spirit-inspired command is you and I have a responsibility to look around those in our body, those in our church, and see if anyone is lame in terms of their uh, strength in pursuing Christ, the gospel, hanging on to the gospel. Are their hands weak? Are they losing their grip on the sufficiency of Christ and his new covenant? If so, we have a responsibility to see to it that no one comes short of God's grace. Then he uses this, uh, this image from Deuteronomy to make his point. See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, I don't know about you, but most people, uh, I think in my Christian life, uh, that have used this term root of bitterness has uh, meant it as something in me or in you that leads to what we call bitterness toward others. You know what I mean by that? Uh, we use the term bitterness to describe resentment, anger, hostility that we let build and build and build, and we become so angry at someone that we, we don't judge them fairly, we, we treat them poorly, we wish they're ill, and it just, it just festers. Right, it might start, start off as sort of mild annoyance, but then if there's offense thrown in there, you, someone offends you, and you just dwell on that, and you allow that to grow and grow, and you become angry and what we call bitter. Uh, maybe you've heard the, the saying that uh, bitterness is like uh, you drinking poison, thinking or hoping the other person will die, that kind of thing. Uh, side note, I have a good friend who uh, was on my staff when I was a, a pastor in a traditional model church for a long time, and uh, she was our music director. And uh, she was deeply bitter at me for years. And in God's grace, he brought her to repentance 
We Reconciled. She wrote a book about it, which Cross the Crown published. So I edited it for her and she tells our story. It's really her story, but I'm in there as the object of her bitterness, at least one of them, uh, for a period of time. Anyway, it's called Bitter Truth and her name is Linda Graff, G-R-A-F. And uh, she speaks at women's conferences around. So if you're uh, if you're church would uh, would be uh, would benefit from having a, a woman come speak on bitterness. I highly recommend contacting her and getting her book. And there's a workbook as well uh, for people. It's not just for women the, as far as the book goes. Um, anyway, it's called Bitter Truth, Linda Graff, G-R-A-F. Uh, and she does a great job of laying out the sin of bitterness and the the temptations that someone goes through when they are uh, just really captured by bitterness and uh, what it takes to repent of it and to move move beyond it. Having said all of that, that's not what this root of bitterness is. <laughs> when he says, see to it that no, no root of bitterness springs up, uh, springing up causes trouble, he's not talking about what's going on in you individually or singularly. But the root of bitterness is a person in the body that has the potential to lead many astray. So he first gives the command to you all, plural, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And then he adds to it, let no root, let no individual bitter person, not bitter as in angry, but in this context, it would be someone who is walking away from the faith, someone who's leading others to let go of Christ for fear of persecution and so on. That person is that root that will spread this bitterness through the whole church and cause trouble for everyone. The, the kind of person who says, you know, maybe offering some sacrifices at the temple is not such a bad idea. Maybe continuing some of those rituals that we had uh, under the law of Moses is not such a bad idea. And especially if it means our, uh, our fellow Jews will stop hurting us and persecuting us, that kind of person can become this root that leads to poison through the whole group. Tracking with me? So let's go back and look at the, uh, the original statement here from Deuteronomy 29. Do you remember what, uh, what, happened in Deuteronomy 28? Have you been with us enough? I think I spent quite a bit of time there. What, what's Deuteronomy 28 all about? Anybody remember? I'll give you a second. I know there's a, a delay. Let's see if anybody recalls what uh, Deuteronomy 28 uh, covers the same ground as Leviticus 26, and it's a crucial section for understanding the old covenant or the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. Uh, yeah, Dale got it. Blessings and curses. If you obey the covenant perfectly, then God says, I will bless you this way. If you disobey, then I will curse you this way. Okay? So that's what's going on in chapter 28. Chapter 29 says this. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them at Horeb. So he's concluding now this list of blessings and curses that are attached to that old covenant. Ron says, I am too new here. Well, you can go back and check it out. Uh, watch my uh, series, The Glory of the New Covenant, if you want to get more, or you can just go back and read it yourself. 
That's, that always works too. All right, so let's go on in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. He's re- recounting the plagues and all that. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. It's kind of a discouraging statement, isn't it? I, Moses says, have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. Another miracle. 40 years wandering in the desert and their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. God's preserving grace. You've not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink in order that you might know that I am the Lord, your God. When you reach this place, Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them. We took their land, gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. God kept his promise in the covenant. These who came up against them, they destroyed. So keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today. So you're representing all the people and you're, you're in this covenant. In order that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God, just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. So that raises the question, is this talking about uh, those who couldn't actually travel to the mountain here to receive this? Or is it talking about future generations or both? Right? But he's saying all who are, who are Israelites, present and future, they're in this covenant. They are bound to this covenant. He says, for you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you've seen their abominations, that's the abominations of the Egyptians, and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them. He goes on, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve gods of those nations. See what it's saying here? So I've brought you out here. I'm talking to you and all who are Israelites, whether they're right here or not. You've seen the Egyptians and how God delivered you from the Egyptians. You've seen all of their abominations, their false gods, which they made of wood and stone and so on. And I'm telling you this so that there will not be among you, among the group of the Israelites here, a man or a woman, a family or a tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God. What will happen if a man or a woman among the Jews turns away from God and breaks the covenant? Well, they will invoke God's curses. They will provoke God's curses. You go and serve those gods of the other nations, he says, that there will not be among you a what? A root bearing poisonous fruit 
and wormwood. So a person, a man or a woman, or a family or a tribe that turns away from God to serve idols, Moses calls them a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Wormwood is a, uh, a bitter, uh, bitter plant. It, 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 it's a word in Hebrew for bitterness. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. So you see the context here. This is an individual or a larger group. It's not something within a person. Do you see that distinction? It's very important. That he's not saying, uh, be on guard, that there's not uh, this thing inside you that just causes resentment and anger toward others. Now that's bad. <laughs> we, need to, we need to not do that. And that leads to all kinds of problems in the church. But that's not the point in Deuteronomy. The point is a person who walks away from God to serve idols and leads others to turn from God. That root, that poisonous root, then spreads through the whole camp. And if the masses turn from God to idols, they will provoke God to enact the curses of the covenant and destroy the Israelites. So that's what's happening in Deuteronomy. The writer of Hebrews grabs that same image and says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So what he's saying here is, we have a responsibility in the church to help everyone get to the finish line, to hold fast to Christ. And what happens if someone in our midst turns from full devotion to Christ, if they start wavering? At some point, we make a determination that they're no longer weak, but they have turned from the gospel and now they have the potential to be this bitter root that will spread through and defile many. And we have to get that person out of there. It's very similar to what Paul says to the, to the Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. Get that evil one out of the, the midst. He said, I don't even have to come. I've heard enough. I'm not even there with you. I've heard enough. Get that person out of the camp to preserve the purity of the, of the church, as well as to, he says, turns that person over to Satan and uh, the hope is that person will repent. And he says, and that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. So now, so he's used the example of the root of bitterness and now using Esau of Jacob and Esau fame in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, rather. And he says, don't let there be someone immoral or godless like Esau. And what was his godless act? He sold his birthright for a single meal. Do you remember that story? Let's go back and look at it. 
So Jacob and Esau are born. Remember the twins? They're in their mother's womb and they're fighting and, and so on. And uh, then it says in chapter Genesis 25, verse 27, when the boys grew up, that's Jacob and Esau, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, uh, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So they're playing favorites here. Dad likes Esau, mom likes Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I am famished. Therefore, his name is called Edom, which in Hebrew has to do with being red. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Do you know what birthright he's talking about? Anybody? What was the birthright in the Old Testament days, in the patriarchal period? Do you know? So Esau is hungry. Jacob has made some delicious smelling stew or something, porridge or whatever it is. And Esau says, give me some of that. And Jacob says, okay, but it'll be a trade. I'll give you some of this soup and you give me your birthright. Yeah, Lon got it. The firstborn. Esau, though they were twins, Esau came out first. So he was the firstborn. That means he was to receive a double portion of the estate and the headship over the entire clan. Yeah, Dale says basically everything, the whole inheritance, right. Uh, in, in those days, there would be a little bit for other sons, but most of it goes to the firstborn. So he would have replaced his father as the head of the clan, and he would have received the inheritance. And so Jacob, pretty bold here, uh, just says, okay, you can have some of this food I made, but give me your firstborn rights. I don't know. Did he think he would, it would that uh, it was uh, Esau would take him seriously? I don't know. But <laughs> look what Esau says: "Behold, I am about to die. So, what use then is this birthright to me? I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. So, who cares if I inherit everything and so on?" And Jacob says, first swear to me. Swear that you'll give me your birthright." So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. And notice uh, the commentary here from, uh, from Moses, or whoever is writing this. Thus Esau despised his birthright. For a bowl of soup, he traded it. He, he, it was no big deal. He couldn't care less about what was promised to inherit all the estate and so on. All right, so then fast forward. Later on, when uh, their father Isaac is about to die, and he, he's blind, basically, and so he calls Esau in to bestow upon him the firstborn blessing. Of course, Isaac doesn't know any of this went on with Jacob and Esau back over the soup. So he calls Esau in and says, I'm going to bless you and give you the firstborn blessing. He says, first, go out and hunt some game that I like and go get, uh, get the, and make me some food that I enjoy. So while he's out, Rebecca helps Jacob prepare soup. He comes in, he deceives his blind father, and Isaac pronounces the firstborn blessing, not on Esau, but on Jacob. Tracking with me? So the firstborn blessing that should have been Esau's is now given to Jacob. 
and he's given the uh, the whole estate and and Isaac says, may your brothers, including Esau, bow down before you. So Jacob receives a blessing. He leaves. And now Esau comes back thinking, all right, I've got my game. I've made my stew for my dad. He's going to give me the blessing. And here's how it goes in uh, Genesis 27, 30. Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food, brought it to his father. He said to his father, let my father arise, eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, who are you? Isaac has just blessed Jacob, thinking it was Esau. And now he's saying, wait, who are you with this food? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, who was he that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. I've already given the blessing to Jacob. I can't take it back. He will receive the blessing. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. See what he's doing? He is seeking Isaac to change his mind, change the circumstances, bless him, take back what he had blessed Jacob with. Bless me, Father. I'm the firstborn. Isaac says, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And Esau says, is he not rightly named Jacob, which means deceiver, for he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. He said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac replied to Esau, behold, I've made him your master and all his relatives I've given to him as servants with grain and new wine. I've sustained him. Now as for you, then what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept. See what he's looking for? He's looking for a reversal of this blessing. And he cries out with tears. The writer of Hebrews says, don't let there be any immoral or godless person in your midst who sold his birth, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. How is the writer of Hebrews using that story? He's not talking about an individual who struggles, weak in faith, walks away even, that he can't repent and come back to faith, is he? Is that his point? Our time is up. I'm going to let that sit a little bit. And we'll come back tomorrow and, and work through it. And if you have thoughts, put it in the comments. I'd love to see them. But look at this story as the writer of Hebrews uses it in its context, both the context of, Deuter of uh, Genesis and the point that he's making here, and see if you can figure it out. And let, the, let your exegesis and let, let the, 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 the argument 
form your interpretation rather than just asking an abstract theological question of whether it's possible for someone to repent of sin, for instance. See the difference? All right, I'm going to leave you there. And uh, we will come back tomorrow, Lord willing, and talk about it. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow.